The text for our sermon today is from Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Having things in the right order matters. Having things in the right order matters. So here's a silly example for you. Suppose that you came up to me and asked me to spell the word God. And I said, D-O-G. And you looked at me and you said, you've been sniffing all of those uh, joint compound fumes in your office a little bit too much, Pastor. You got it all out of order. That's not how you spell God. And I say to you, well, look, I've got all of the letters, haven't I? I've got the D and I've got the O and I've got the G. It's the same thing. And you say, no, it spells a different word entirely. I wanted you to spell God and what you have spelled is dog. It means something different. The order matters. Even when you have all of the right parts, the order matters. That's true when it comes to building a house. And this is very obvious. You need some things for a house, a foundation and walls and a roof. But what will happen if you put that roof on the bottom and then the walls next and the foundation on top? It will be a house in some way, I suppose, and maybe you could find some shelter in it, but it is not the way a house was meant to be. The order matters. Getting the order right matters. Last week, when I began talking to you about marriage, I talked about how the world makes a wreck of marriage. And the way that the world made a wreck of marriage last week was thinking about it all wrong, forgetting that marriage belongs to God, thinking instead that maybe marriage belongs to the world or to the couple who are getting married, but no, in fact, marriage belongs to God. And when we think otherwise, when we regard marriage otherwise, we are learning from the world how to treat this precious gift of God, a world which is really engaged in a demolition derby that thinks the cars are for smashing rather than for driving. And so we are setting out to learn from God, learn from God, the maker of marriage, the giver of marriage, what marriage ought to be. Another way to make a wreck of marriage is to get things out of order. This is so common in our world, especially nowadays, more than it ever has been before. So here is the order that God describes, and this is not strange or unfamiliar to you. Here's how God puts it. Here's how God intends to join a man and a woman together. Genesis chapter 2, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Words that God used in the Garden of Eden to describe how Adam and Eve would be joined together, and words that Jesus repeated in the New Testament, saying that marriage hasn't changed. In spite of the fall into sin, in spite of the ways we manage to corrupt it, marriage is the same as it ever was, a man and a woman joined together by God in this particular way. So there's three things going on there. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, 
and the two shall become one flesh. Three parts to marriage that belong together, that go in order. So first of all, leaving your father and mother is saying that you're starting a new home. We would do well to think of ourselves as belonging to homes, as parts of a household. Whether you are a father or mother or a husband or wife or a child, or wherever you are in life, you are a part of a household. And marriage involves the formation of a new household. So you leave behind your father and mother. You say, I am no longer a part of that home. I am starting a new home. This is what the wedding rite does, which we saw here yesterday as Jimmy and Julia Wicker got married. They made their vows, and I said, I now pronounce you husband and wife, and then we signed a marriage certificate, a marriage license. They left the homes that they were in before and formed a new home, leaving behind father and mother so that now they can live together. So that now Jimmy can cling, hold fast to his wife. This is the second part. Life together. Which, of course, most obviously is living together under the same roof. But obviously it also involves much more than that. Sharing everything. That's what you promise in marriage. To have and to hold for better, for worse. In richer and poorer, in sickness and health. Till death us do part. Or then those amazing vows as they put the rings on with my Life, I honor you. With my body, I honor you. Giving your whole self to another person. Life together. That's the second part of marriage. First, the wedding vows. The public proclamation that a new home is being formed. And then second, a life together. And then third, this. The two shall become one flesh. This is where sex and babies come in. Two things that belong together. They go together. And that's the one flesh union that God creates in a marriage. Two being united in the most intimate way and out of that union coming fruit that God has promised. Three parts to marriage. Three steps in God's plan for marriage. And the order matters. Now if we were going to talk about getting things out of order, you might think first of all of one of the most common problems in our world and that is premarital sex. Sex outside of marriage. And that's something to talk about. I'll take that up at another time. You can look forward to that later. But today we're going to talk about a different problem, a different concern, getting things out of order in a different way, and that is living together before marriage, living together before marriage. What used to be unheard of and pretty shameful, in fact, maybe you remember um, in the old TV show, I Love Lucy, even Ricky and Lucy, who were married, (laughs) did not sleep together in the same bed in the show because it was understood that a life together is something that belongs within marriage, that's something that is not open to the world to consider something that is important. The marriage bed ought to be dignified and kept clean. Now it is commonplace, so commonplace for couples to live together before they are married or to spend the night with one another before they are married. And when sin becomes commonplace, it becomes especially difficult for Christians to be clear-headed. Anytime that something is wrong and it becomes ordinary, it feels less and less wrong. And so you can hear the kinds of things that people think that we all think, even if we don't say it aloud, and that is, everybody's doing it. What can be the big deal? Why is it such a big deal? It seems to work out for everyone. It's normal. That's a challenge for Christians, and that's one of the reasons why I'm talking about it, because we do ourselves a disservice if we don't say it aloud, because the world speaks loudly, very loudly, about all of these things. 
Now, there are lots of reasons why couples choose to live together before marriage, and they seem to be reasonable reasons. So one of the most common ones is, look, you don't, you don't buy a car without test driving it first. Why would you marry someone whom, with whom you've not lived? You're entering into something completely unknown. Shouldn't you figure out what things are like before you tie the knot? Try it out first. Or maybe it's just kind of fun to play house. Like when the kids go out in the woods and make a fort and they you know, make mud pies and pretend like they're playing home, that's also fun. Especially if you don't have the real obligations of having a home, right? That's what makes it fun for kids to play house, is they don't have to pay the bills. <laughs> they don't have to take care of things. They can just leave it behind at the end of the day. Playing house is fun. Or maybe it's a matter of convenience, and this is often the case, especially later in life, that finances become a reason to live together without marriage. It's cheaper. It's cheaper. You can share resources. You can make a better life for yourself if you're living together. Most basic of all, probably, however, is when folks live together out of passion, the passion of lust. And we say this in the wedding ceremony. We say that marriage is not to be entered into inadvisably or lightly and not in the passion of lust. Lust is an ungodly thing. It is to take sex apart from the whole that God gives us. It's to separate this one part and so ruin it. Instead, we are to think of each other as God's gifts to one another. And so the whole of the thing matters. So there are lots of reasons why couples live together. And in fact, it's worth noting this very important fact, which is often overlooked. And that is when a couple lives together before marriage, they are desiring a good thing. It's what God wants for married couples, that they live their lives together. It's the second part. It's holding fast to your wife. It is a good thing. But, but, good things taken out of order turn wicked. They turn corrupt and sinful. Some sense still holds that uh, in our world we know that things are out of order. When a couple lives together without marriage, we still say things like, we should make it right, or we should make an honest woman of her, or whatever it might be. We know that something good has turned wicked. Now, I could make all kinds of practical arguments, and maybe just a few, of why living together outside of marriage is not a good idea. The statistics nowadays are very clear that it does not bode well for marriage for a couple to live together without being married. The rate of divorce is higher than if a couple has not lived together, and other problems emerge as well. We just, it's like if you know, you know that it's a bad idea to put the cart before the horse, we all know instinctively. And it's not a good idea to put the roof before the foundation. It's not a good idea. It's not a good idea. But practical arguments in the end really don't matter. Even if it were true that living together before marriage meant a happier marriage, it would still be sinful. This is important to note. The reason why we do things as Christians is not because they are practical, but because of God's word. This goes back to the foundation of marriage. We should not take our cue concerning marriage from what the world does, or what the world says is good, and least of all, from what our own flesh desires. Instead, we should start with this. What does God say? After all, marriage belongs to God. And this takes us back to the text that I read at the beginning of the sermon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. That is to say, if you try to build a home without God, apart from God's word, 
Contrary to God's word, it is in vain, futile, useless. It will collapse. Jesus talks about building a house in another lesson, Luke chapter 6. This one's familiar to everyone. Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Thanks be to God that he has told us how to build our homes, and moreover, that he wants to build them for us. It's by the authority of Jesus. It's by the authority of Jesus that we know what is good and that we can cling to it. You saw the authority of Jesus in our gospel lesson. He said the word. He simply said the word, and the leper was cleansed. He said the word, and the centurion's servant was healed. He says the word and promises to us marriage in a way that is far better than the world can offer. Now, this is the time to talk about how we deal with sin. Anytime we talk about something that is good or bad or right or wrong or the commandments of God, sin comes to the surface. Sin in our own lives, sin in the world around us, and we have to pay attention to that. In fact, this is perhaps the most important question that we have to deal with in the church, and that is, what do we do with sin? Fortunately, the answer to that question is the easiest answer. Repent. Repent and believe. Turn away from sin and believe. Trust in your Savior who died to take away your sin. He wants to do it all for you. He wants to give you life and salvation. And so it couldn't be easier. Repent and believe. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's what John the Baptist said to the people who came out to be baptized by him, the soldiers and the tax collectors who'd been living lives of wickedness. They said, John, you're baptizing us, a baptism of repentance. What should we do now? And he said, quit your sins. Turn away from them. You soldiers, if you've been stealing from people, stop. You tax collectors, if you've been extorting people, stop. That's how we deal with sin. Trusting in the promise of forgiveness and turning away from it. Now, there are different kinds of sin, and I want to talk just now about two ways that sin is in our lives. One is in the past, and one is at the present. So imagine a sin of the past. And this could be a sin against the sixth commandment. It could be a sin against marriage. It could be any kind of sin. You've got sin in your past. We all do. None of us gets to make it through this life without sin in our past. So what do you do with it? In the first place, you recognize it as sin. We are always tempted to make excuses or offer explanations or to trivialize, minimize our sins, to call them anything but what they are, and that is grievous faults. Sins which deserve death. Sins for which Jesus died. And so, when you think about the sin in your past, you should be like David, King David, who, when he was confronted by Nathan, said, 
Only this, I have sinned against the Lord. That's what you do with your sins. You acknowledge them. And then you thank God that he was gracious to you in spite of your sin. After all, you are all sitting here today, still hearing the words of your Savior. If any one of us were to make a reckoning of all of our sins and we were to sit down and look at it face to face, see it in the eye, we would think there's no way that God is going to save me from this. Those sins are too great. They are too numerous. There's no way. I'm worse than anyone else. And yet, here you are. Your Savior still speaking to you. Your Shepherd still calling you because he loves you. Thank God that he has shown you your sin so that he can forgive it, so that you can repent and believe. Those are the sins in the past, and I should observe this. I should note this. Sometimes your sins from the past come back to haunt you, and that is a work of the devil. He likes to bring forgiven sins to mind, to ask you, did Jesus really forgive that one? Did he really take care of that one? Have you really paid for that one well enough? He thinks that you ought to do something about it. This is where private confession and absolution, coming to see your pastor, is one of the best things. Because my job is very simple. <laughs> I really have very few tools in my toolbox. And one of them is this. You say, I'm sorry for my sins. And I say, I, I have to forgive you. Jesus told me to. He died for you. Your sins are forgiven. And I will say that to you as often as you need it. As often as you need it. In the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you your sins. They can harm you no more. So that's how you deal with your sins in the past. But what about present sins? Sins that you are stuck in now. Sins that you are living with now. Heed John's counsel to the tax collectors and the soldiers. Quit your sins. Quit your sins. Not only are they not good for you, but they harden your heart when you choose them. Now, this is not a condition for forgiveness. It's not as though Jesus only died on the cross for you if you quit your sins. As though his sacrifice, his blood poured out for you, depends on you. But the fact is, you cannot receive his forgiveness if you are holding on to your sins. You cannot receive his forgiveness if you are holding on to your sins. It's like going to the doctor with a brain tumor. The doctor wants to treat your brain tumor. He says, I'm going to give you chemotherapy, and I'm going to cut that tumor out of your brain. You say, look, can I just have the chemotherapy, but hold on to the tumor? Can I keep the tumor? Is that okay? It's senseless. Quit your sins. If you want them forgiven, let go of them. Let go of them. Let Jesus have them. This is what Naaman struggled with. In our Old Testament lesson, he came to the prophet and he thought that he could have healing, cleansing his own way. And he was about to go off in a rage because it wasn't what he wanted. He wanted to have his own way. And Elisha, Elisha offers him this simple thing, just wash seven times. And thanks be to God that his servants, that Naaman's servants appealed to him. Look, <laughs> that word from that man of God is a good word. Just go and wash. Leave your leprosy behind. Leave your sin behind. That is why the Christian, when confronted with sin, never says, I do not want to quit, or I will quit later. Those words cannot come from the mouth of a Christian because the Christian knows that sin is deadly, that sin is the reason why Jesus came to die, that Jesus has come to forgive your sins, to take, you, take them away from you, and so you cannot hold on to them. You must let them go. You must leave them behind. 
We must be like that leper who came to Jesus and fell at, his, fell at his feet and pleaded for mercy. Lord, make me clean. Or like that centurion who came to Jesus and said, Lord, I know that you can do anything, that by a word you can heal. Make me well. That's how we deal with sin. That's how Christians deal with sin. We regard it as wicked and evil and the death of us, and so we cling to our Savior. We cling to our Savior. The whole point of the Christian life is forgiveness that leads to a new life. That's the point of forgiveness, is that your sins be gone, that you live a new life. And this is, to bring things full circle, this is why marriage matters to everyone. Whether you are married or have been married or will be married or anywhere in between, this is why marriage matters to everyone, because this is God's love for you. Love that forgives and makes whole. Love that sacrifices and gives life. The starting place for us in every aspect of life is God's love for us. And this is why, again, talking about living together, God's love for us is the great example. After all, he is not just playing house with us. He's not just trying things out to see how we will fare, if we will make for a good bride. He's not with us just as a matter of convenience because it's cheaper, because rent, we can save on rent. He's not with us in the passion of lust because he just wants to use us. He is with us because he has given himself entirely to us. That is the love that saves the world. And that is the love that we should exhibit in our lives, the love that we should pursue in our lives, the love that we should encourage one another to enjoy, to rejoice in. This is God's gift to us. He has given himself wholly and freely and sacrificially to us by his flesh and blood, which make us righteous, which you're about to receive in Holy Communion. You have been given a new life, a new hope, a future. His word teaches us what is good. Let us hold fast to what is good. We do not deserve such a gracious offer. We don't deserve to have God show us what marriage should look like. We don't deserve to have him forgive our sins, and yet he has done it. He has given us every blessing. We do not deserve such a loving bridegroom. May we always, with humility and trust in his promises, build our homes on his word. To God alone be all glory, now and forever. Amen.